Ladies and gentlemen, please give it up for the man of a million nicknames, a thousand four holds, Mr. Chris Jericho! Talk is Jericho, baby. Talk is Jericho. Talk is Jericho, mama. Talk is me. Welcome to Talk is Jericho. It is the pod of thunder and rock and roll. And if you haven't booked your cabin yet for Chris Jericho's Rock and Wrestling Rager at C4 Leaf Clover, you still have time. Still a few cabins left at ChrisJerichoCruise.com. We set sail February 2nd, and for the first time ever, we're going to our own private island, Grand Stirrup K. So come hang with me. A pretty stacked up lineup of talent as well. AW's going to be there. We got comedy and music. Raven the band. Fozzie's going to be there. Quiet Riot. Royal Bliss. Fozzie's doing three shows. Like I said, I'll be doing live podcasts. Dave Schrader of the Paranormal 60. We'll be hosting some live paranormal experiences and stories. Maybe he'll even tell us about the ghosts of Devil's Perch. We just heard about that last week. It's a great time, the vacation of a lifetime, so come hang with us. Book your cabin now, ChrisJerichoCruise.com. All right, you guys know I went to the UK earlier this year to do the Chris Jericho Chronicles one-man shows. It was a different theme each night. We had a great time telling stories and hanging out with everybody. So I thought I'd share another one of those great shows with you today. This one was live in Glasgow, and the theme was all things AEW. We talked about my AEW career to date from the moment I signed with AEW to our first Dynamite to winning the AEW World Championship to our most recent Blood and Guts. Taking that giant swing from Claudio Castagnoli from on top of the steel cage was terrifying. You hear behind-the-scenes stories about the formation of the Inner Circle and the Jericho Appreciation Society and who was originally supposed to be in each faction. I'll talk about Orange Cassidy and the Mimosa Mayhem, MJF, the Dinner Debonair. You hear why I didn't work more closely with Jungle Boy and what happened with my original plans with Eddie Kingston. I got stories with AEW pandemic shows, a little bit of the bubbly, Cody Rhodes, Jake Hager, Nick Cage, so much more. All about my time in AEW, the best wrestling company in the world today. And it starts right here, right now on Talk is Jericho. Chris Jericho live from Glasgow. Well, that's it. Thank you. Good night. That was awesome. It's great to see you guys. Thank you for coming here. This is my new favorite venue in Glasgow. We've played them all, but this is a good one. So thank you guys for coming. Appreciate it. So we're here tonight to talk about AEW and the run of Jericho in AEW so far. I believe there was bottles of bubbly during the meet and greet. So you're all very, very aware AEW is Jericho t-shirts. Um, let's just go to the beginning. So you're a WWE guy for all these years. And, you know, you'd said as well, you know, I don't see myself going anywhere else. And then the New Japan stuff happens. And then in 2019, you are unveiled as the sort of guy who's not part of that clique um, who were coming into AEW. And it was a massive shock to hear that you were going to be making the jump. Can you tell us a little bit about making that jump? First of all, what did we sing in Glasgow for the Fozzie gig? We sang some stupid song. You guys, was anybody there at the Glasgow show? What did we sing? Three blind mice, that was it. <laughs> Let's do it again. Three blind mice. Three blind mice. <laughs> and then no one knows the rest of the words. Anyways, that's our song from now on, Glasgow. Whenever I'm around, we're going to do three blind mice. So there you go. So, yeah, I worked for WWE for, I think, 19 years. And to me, it was almost like there's really no reason for me to go anywhere else because this is the biggest company in the world. I've 
done everything you could do here, so I'll just stay. I mean, this, I don't want to do independence, or I don't want to go here or go there, et cetera, et cetera. Then in 2017, I could be wrong about the year, maybe it was 16, you guys know dates better than I do, uh, I was doing a program with Kevin Owens. And when we were doing this program, it was, in my opinion, the best story of the year. It was something that I think we started. Thank you. I think we started it at SummerSlam, and I said, I think we can take this all the way to WrestleMania, which is basically eight months, whatever it is. And that's what we did. And we had this really great chemistry of like the best friends and all the stuff that we did. And then we did the big breakup. And what was supposed to happen for a week was it was going to culminate in the main event of WrestleMania, Jericho versus Owens for the WWE world title. And then uh, Jericho was going to win the, the, the world title at WrestleMania in the main event or one of the main events. Vince told me that himself and I was like that's great you know I've never been champion here as a as a babyface ever I was never WWE champion as a babyface I've never been a world champion as a babyface period um, so I thought well this is really cool and the story because to me the story is good and then the next week Vince changed his mind to uh, Brock and Goldberg for the title of the main event and <laughs> you know I, you know once again I'm a big boy I'm a professional it's his company he can do whatever he wants so uh, I wasn't like like angry but it was just like oh that lasted a week but whatever move on to the next thing but the thing that bugged me was they put our match second on Wrestlemania now anybody that knows anything about the order of Wrestlemania from a professional standpoint if you can't be last you want to be first uh, semi main event is good and then there's a real kind of long area in that Wrestlemania three four hour show going on second is kind of insulting um, because it's it's almost like a it's not a death spot on the show but the first match always has a lot of uh, prestige to it and the second match is just a match the way that the time of it was and everything and that's when I was like I'll never go past second match here in in, in, in WWE like it, this is kind of the best story it's the best time my character is super hot the list was hot all that stuff was hot and second that's it and I was like I'm done. So that's kind of where I made the decision, like, I don't really want to work here anymore. And had the match with New Japan, uh, with, with Kenny come about, I don't know if I would have went back to WWE. You know, I was talking to them about going back after I did the New Japan run, but it was a little bit of a runaround. And once again, it just wasn't a priority there anymore. So it really kept the door open for this new venture, AEW, when I started hearing about it. And then, you know, when Tony Khan makes his overtures to you to come in, was there part of you, did you think if I take this, the, the door is closed to WWE? Did you think if I take this, you know, that's the only way I could do what I wanted to do there one day? Was that any of that in your mind? I didn't care about the door being closed with WWE because like I said at that point, and this is not like angry or bitter, it's just, it's second match. Okay, great. Let's do something else. So... When the idea came for AW, and like you've heard it a million times, like oh, there's a new wrestling company, this guy's got some money, like whatever, you know, whatever, same thing over and over again. And it took me a while to really believe what Tony was talking about. Because what you need to start a company is you need money and a lot of it, uh, which the Khan family has. You need a great television deal, which we didn't have at the time, but we finally got it with, with TNT and TBS. And you need a collection of guys who aren't retreads 
or haven't lived up to their full potential. And we had that with the elite right out of the gate and then bringing in Moxley right out of the bat, bat for the first show that we had. That's a guy who just was not even close to living up in his full potential. You can see that now. Moxley now is so much better and bigger than he ever was as Dean Ambrose. So we had all three of those things. Uh, and also a, a passion and a desire uh, and a... Uh, not a vendetta, but there was a point to prove. So when I started really thinking about going to AW, it really reignited my passion and love for wrestling. And more importantly, I said, I could really cement my legacy with this because I could stay in WWE. It doesn't matter. Uh, it's always going to be good if I'm there. Anything that I do at the risk of sounding egotistical, anything I do is going to be good. But if I go to AW and it becomes something, we've now changed the course of wrestling history. And it's basically on my back. The first three or four months of AEW was on Chris Jericho's back completely. Um, so that was like, if we can make this work, suddenly there's a whole different level of you know legendary status to Chris Jericho. I did give WWE a chance, though. I did give them a chance and said, here's the offer that I've gotten for this new company. And I was told to, Vince says, take it. I think he thought I was bluffing. And when I took it, then about a week later, he's like, you took it? And I'm like, yeah. He goes, can you get out of it? I'm like, no. <laughs> you told me to take it. Why would I try and get out of it, you know? And then he's like, well, who's, uh, what's the when, when you're trying to bring somebody in, who's, uh, I don't know, whatever, it's like, like, like not cultivating, but who's kind of, whatever. backing it? Yeah, well, like, who, 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 who oh, uh, if you're going to the army and you enroll into the army, you're signing up and you are... Enlist? Enroll? Enli yeah, enlist. Who's enlisting? I'll think of the word later. Like, who's kind of bringing in guys? Who's the broker to get guys to come in? That's what Vince is asking me. And it's like, I'm thinking to myself, well, it's me. <laughs> I didn't want to tell him that. And then he was asking me all these, like, what kind of a TV deal? And I was like, you can't ask me these questions. I'm not going under here as a covert agent uh, spy uh, for Vince McMahon. So anyways, and then once I took the deal with Tony, I'm full on 1000%, no looking back, let's create some history, and that's what we did. Recruiting, that's the word. <laughs> Recruiting! Um, you guys go on top of a steel cage and get spun around a bunch of times, see if you can remember words. My God, we'll get to that. Um, so, I mean, the weird thing was, because in, in the January, there's the press conference you're announced as part of AEW, but you guys aren't doing the show till May. There's all this kind of build-up time. I don't want to say, were you nervous? But, like, what was your thoughts going into kind of, you know, you've, got, you've all got five months to really build this? Because it was a, a strange concept that, like, you announce, and then there's five, four months, and then there's this big show. Well, I, I think once again, I mean, I, I remember the original television deal. Now, so it's, it seems like a million years ago, especially I know in the UK, we have a great time slot. We actually do better than Raw a lot of weeks, ITV, if, if that's the, the, the network, I think it is. But at the time, there was no television deal. And I remember at some point we were talking about maybe going on Showtime. At uh, some point we were thinking maybe streaming it on, I don't know, Amazon Prime or something along, along those lines. And it's like, this is, this is that's not good enough. You know, it's, you can't just put it on, a, on a, you know, a Showtime or whatever. And then TBS started to get interested. I think 
because Chris Jericho was involved and Jim Ross. I think those two names were the two names that got us the TV deal, along with Tony's passion and his commitment and this other, all these other factors I told you. So it was a little bit, um, I think that's why we announced when we did. The show doesn't start till May, but we have this TV deal, so we did the press conference. It was weird um, having, like, I was on, under contract for five months before I, I did a match, you know? But it was all part of this build to cement this new company because, once again, talking about it now three years later, it's, you know, it's, it's old hat. It was AW, it's huge. There was no guarantees of anything. And I think the one thing that we've done, the original kind of AEW originals, is that we made AEW safe for CM Punk, for Brian Danielson, for Adam Cole. Everyone that's coming in now, maybe three years ago, wouldn't have come in because they're like, well, we want to see what's going to happen with this new company, if it's going to float. Or, and, we, and we didn't know. Our first television deal on TBS was a rev, a rev share. And a rev share means you're basically getting a, a, a piece of the advertising. The commercials that you see, uh, we would get a piece of that. We didn't even have a guaranteed contract. Three months in, though, I, started, I called myself the demo god at the time. What does that mean? Demos are very important. It's more important. You could draw a million people and have a demo of a point two, or draw 500,000 and have a demo of point four. You'd rather have the point four. It's kind of confusing. But after those three months of demos, we get the TV deal of $170 million for four years or whatever it was after three months. Nobody expected that. And once we got that, now, now we're a driving force to be reckoned with. Then all out 2019, you become the first AEW World Champion. You beat Adam Page. I mean, how soon into the strategy of AEW was it that you would be the first champion? When did that kind of come to pass? I think, like, I don't ever remember being told, like, okay, you are going to be the first champion. But it was just kind of a given because I was the biggest name on the roster. And, and Hangman, obviously, was a younger guy. And, and people bitch and complain about everything. And they're so, oh, he's beating the beating the younger guys he's just like Hulk Hogan in 1998 and it's like you obviously don't understand the concept of business because you put over your biggest name to draw people to watch and Hangman did a great job and he'll be a world champion and he was and he was a great champion too but it wasn't the right time for him I think it was always kind of understood that I'd be the first champion just because I was the biggest name uh, and once again had the company on my back uh, and I also knew I had to build stars very quickly, so let's try and get as much as we can out of these title shots. I remember I had Darby on week three. I wanted Sonny Kiss, but Tony picked Darby. He shot up right away. Scorpio Sky shot up right away. Jungle Boy, we did the 10-minute challenge. Cody reinvented him, Mox. So as many guys as we could in a short time try and make some stars right out of the gate because that's what we had to do to get more people to watch. And, you know, at that point, you win the title and then you go backstage and you find the bottle of champagne, which yeah. has, has done very well for you. Um, how, did, how did that come about and were you expecting that it was going to become the phenomenon that it is? You know, I'd love to be able to tell you guys that I'm such a genius that every single thing that's ever gotten over was a plan that I knew I was going to do. I just told you backstage, I've, I've become really good at reading the room. What does that mean? When I say something, and I never, once again, like the, like the wizard, for example. I threw a fireball at Eddie Kingston, and then on commentary, I said, because I'm a wizard, and, and it's like, because I was thinking, my head, well, don't, don't wizards throw fireballs and cast spells and shit? Like, that's a wizard would do that. And then suddenly I'm reading, because before, 10 years ago, if you said something like wizard, you knew it was getting over because people would bring signs. 
in the crowd. You ever notice there's no signs in the crowd anymore? You know why that is? Because people are too busy doing this. So they can't bring a sign. Nowadays, the signs in the crowd are Twitter and Instagram and, the, and the, the, the kind of the responses that you get. Wizard right out of the gate. People loved it. They're making wizard memes. They're making Gandalf as Jericho and all this other stuff. <laughs> now I got a thing. I'm the wizard. Okay, I'm a wizard. There you go. And then it's like, you should wear a pointed hat and a cloak. I'm like, no, 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 no. You don't actually become a wizard because that's stupid. You call yourself a wizard and you say with conviction because the guy, the character thinks, thinks he is a wizard. That's where the, the, the success comes in. So uh, Bubbly uh, was backstage and we were in Chicago and we had to kill some time because they wanted the shot of me walking through the crowd insulting people and getting into my room where then I would then uh, pour some champagne on some unwilling uh, tech, stagehand, just to show how much of a pompous jerk Chris Jericho is. So I remember I was walking through and I, wa I, liked, I liked being live. Let's just do it. And I did it and it worked out good. And like, okay, we got to do it again because the microphone's not working. I'm like, and we did it again. And they're like, oh, there's something wrong. I'm like, guys, this is great material. I'm just throwing out these improv insults. And if you have to do it again, those improv insults aren't improv anymore, and then it's not as fun. So the third time, I was already kind of angry, like kind of pissed off, like not just annoyed, I guess is a better word. So I'm walking through the back, and it's the third time, and now we've got it. And I go into the dressing room, and like I hadn't been in there yet, but they said, you're going to have a spread, like a, like a championship spread. And if you remember, I walk in there, there's literally like a, a, a vegetable platter and a bottle of champagne. And I remember walking in and I was like, <laughs> thinking to myself, this is the spread worthy of a champion? It's terrible. It looks like something like at a church, you know, picnic. There's someone just threw something. I brought the veggie plate. So I go in there and there's two lines that I said that I really popped myself. And a lot of my stuff comes from movies. The first one was, there was olives. And I said, look at this one. There's a little guy in there. And look at this one. There's no little guy. What was the little guy? It's from Spinal Tap, right? And that I thought was hilarious. Nigel Tufnell's backstage thing. He doesn't like the fact that one olive has a pimento and the other one doesn't have a little guy in there and he gets mad. Nobody cared about that one. That was one that was that's a Nigel Tufnell line. That's funny. There's a little guy in there. Then, dumb and dumber, if you guys remember, Jim Carrey at some point, he's like, we'll get a little bit of the bubbly. And then they shoot the owl with the cork. Remember that? So just amusing myself was the Spinal Tap line and a little bit of the bubbly line, and that's it. I pour the champagne on the unsuspecting stagehand, and there you go. Next day, read the room. There's memes, hundreds of them, hundreds <laughs> of them. Not of, there's, not, there's a little guy in there, like, no, of a little bit of the bubbly. And then they start making songs with my voice inserted into the chorus. For example, drowning pool. Let the bodies hit the floor, right? Take out bodies and they put in bubbly. Let the bubbly hit the floor. Let the bubbly, like my voice, or like that stupid mambo number five. A little bit of sun, da, na, na, na. And it was a little bit of bubbly, na, 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 bubbly. So they just did, like, they just kept making them. And there was like, oh, this is a thing. So always read the room. And Glengarry, Glenn Ross, Alec Baldwin, always be closing. I picked up the phone and I called my, my manager, Barry Bloom, and I said, we need to make some, a little bit of the bubbly champagne. And we need to do it fast. Because it's a thing, but you got a, a short window. Well, then they bring in these sommeliers who care about the taste. It's like, I don't care about the taste. All that people want is the bottle. That's what you like. 
Turns out that it tastes really good. It actually got a really good rating. That's how I know the word sommelier. What is a sommelier? It is a, uh, a champagne expert. And they gave my uh, bubbly uh, a good review. So, but I was just like, we just we got to get a cool bottle. That's the most like Iron Maiden Trooper beer. I've never had a Trooper beer, but I have them in my house, just in the bottles. Cares about the beer? Gives a shit. I want the bottle. So that's kind of how it started. Like we got them done really quickly, and it became a thing. That just I was just telling Kenny backstage, we ended up selling fifty thousand bottles of the bubbly. But had we waited two months, we might not have. It was hot. People were excited about it. We used it on the show. We even had the, the bubbly truck where, where um, Inner Circle sprayed the bubbly on, on the pinnacle. So we made it into part of the AEW lexicon, part of the universe, part of the canon, as they say, only because of a throwaway line that I didn't even think was as good as there's, there's a little guy in there, uh, Nigel Tufnell line. <laughs> had, had it gone the other way, we could have had Chris Jericho, there's a little guy in there, uh, uh, olives. <laughs> We sold 50,000 jars of olives. <laughs> uh, so after you win the title from Adam Page, one of the things that I thought was interesting was you and Cody have that big pay-per-view match. And it felt like outside of the Bucks and Kenny Omega that you guys were kind of almost the converts for some WWE fans yeah. who might not have... Was, was that a deliberate thing that that big title match kind of came around at that time? Because it, it well, felt like it converted people. I mean, Cody obviously is, is super talented. But remember, Cody Rhodes in 2022, completely different from Cody Rhodes in 2019. He had reinvented himself, but on an indie level. So I knew people will know this Cody name, but let's, it was similar to the exact same thing I did with Moxley. Let's show him, uh, show the, the audience this new reinvented Cody. So that's kind of where that came from. And he was adamant. And I'm still not too sure why he, he put that, uh, that rule that he, he could never challenge for the world title again. Whatever reason, that was completely his idea. And I guess maybe he wanted people to know that he wasn't just going to win the title as the... You see, he, he, he wanted to be the face of the company. He, we were all faces of the company, but he really embraced the EVP part of it, where the other guys kind of did it in the shadows, but he was doing it on camera and all that sort of thing. So I think he, he wanted people to understand that he wasn't going to take advantage of this position that he was in, and he did the, the you know, I'll never fight for the world title again. So my point was, let's show how good he is. I remember one week, uh, I said, you got to do a promo. We need to see a great promo from you, which he did. And I think that kind of... Once again, like I said, if, if, the, if it's all on my shoulders for three months, let's give a little bit over here to Cody, and now it's on his shoulders. Now there's two of us, and now Kenny's in there, and the Bucks are in there, and Moxie's in there, and suddenly within the first three or four months, there was six of us shouldering the load. But that was the idea, was to really put the spotlight on Cody and let people realize out of the gate how talented he is and how it's a completely different guy than the one that you saw, you know, wearing the, the sparkly pajamas and the, the space, space pants, or the f*** it was, Spaceman, or what his name was? Stardust. Stardust, that's it. <laughs> Stardust was from space, don't you know? <laughs> Duh. So, um, but once you guys have that feud, the inner, the inner circle obviously was a huge part of the beginning of Dynamite from the first episode when Sammy Guevara yeah. joins. Um, with the inner circle, was that your idea to have a group? Was that Tony's yeah. idea? How did it come about? So Tony had this idea. Uh, we both kind of had an idea of having a faction because I'd never led a faction before. And the idea of the name that Tony had was he wanted it to be like Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. He wanted it to be Chris Jericho and the Acclaimed. That was the original name for the Inner Circle. And I was like, I didn't really feel that. I, I didn't want it to be Chris and guys. So he kept the Acclaimed and then later gave it to the Acclaimed. Uh, and I had the idea, I was thinking, the fist. 
like like five fingers forms a fist you punch someone in the face and fist um that didn't go over too well uh and then I did a throwaway promo for the Bucks for their BTE. It might be the only time I've ever actually been on BTE. I remember I filmed it outside of a, of a 7-Eleven, which is like a Tesco or something in the States. And I filmed it on my phone. I said something like, you know, whatever I was going to say, and blah, blah, blah. My, my entire inner circle knows what's going on here. And I remember Matt Jackson said, inner circle, that's pretty cool. That's a good name. And I was like, huh, he's right. <laughs> now, once again, fast forward to when we debut and we are the inner circle, Everyone's complaining on Twitter. This is the stupidest name I've ever heard in my life. Dumb name, stupid name. Fast forward to Jericho Appreciation Society. This isn't half as cool as the inner circle. Stupid name, <laughs> dumb name. I bet you if you scroll through the guy's timeline, it's like the same guy that hated inner circle hates Jericho Appreciation Society, and now they're wearing the, 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 the shirt, right? And so the idea was to put together a faction. And so we were going back and forth, and actually nobody that was actually in the inner circle was pitched first, because I I had I wanted uh, not wanted I suggested MJF, uh, but he was doing something with with Cody, and he's not, he wasn't the right guy. And I had seen Sammy Guevara on an NWO pay per view, uh, and I called Cody and Tony like this. You should we should sign this guy. He looks really good. He wore that stupid panda helmet though. I said, no, no panda helmet. Get rid of that shit. Um, and then the other guys for the tag team, I was thinking Phoenix and Pentagon. Uh, then Tony suggested Santana and Ortiz, who I didn't even know. I, they were on the first Jericho cruise, but I didn't know them. I didn't know their work, but I knew they were good. So I was like, okay, well, let's use those guys. And then he has suggested Anthony Gogo, a Gogo, as the heater. And I had been training at a kickboxing gym where Jake Hager also trained. And I was like, I was a big fan of his early on. If, if you remember, I actually dropped the world title to Jake Hager in WWE. And I just knew, I just, they never used him up to his potential. They just never found a thing for him. And Vince didn't like him because he has a lisp. That's as ridiculous as that sounds. Vince doesn't like him because he has a lisp. Vince doesn't like Cesaro because he's from Switzerland. It's like certain things, and I'm not, I'm not, even, I'm not even kidding. He didn't like Daniel Bryan at first because Daniel Bryan was, is a vegan. Why, why Switzerland, though? That's, that's... Switzerland can't connect with America. <laughs> he's, he's got a list. No one's going to buy him as a tough guy. Vegans? Yeah, vegans, yeah. He doesn't eat steak. Kind of a man doesn't eat steak. Ugh. So, thank you. So, he, so I was like, well, Jake's perfect for this. And so then Tony agreed and signed Jake. So then suddenly we have the inner circle. And the thing I liked with the inner circle right out of the gate was we did a photo shoot after the, the first week or whatever. And I was like looking at this and like everybody looks different, but it looks cohesive. It reminded me of like the, the original, the first Guns N' Roses picture that I saw on the back of Appetite for Destruction. There's five different looking guys, but they all look cool together. And that's what I always loved with the inner circle is like, it just looks, you see this and it's like, none of these guys match, but it works. And that's, that's kind of how that started. And, and, and from a chemistry standpoint and from a personal standpoint, we got, had so much fun, the five of us. And we didn't even, I never met Sammy before. I didn't know Santana Ortiz. And I knew Jake, but I hadn't seen him for years. And we just got along and it really fit and it worked well. And it was just a great kind of our first real 
kind of cornerstone in AEW, first invention as a character was the Inner Circle. Because then the Inner Circle is such a big part of Dynamite in late 2019, and then of course COVID hits in 2020, and WrestleMania was the first pay-per-view of the COVID era, and they did the cinematic matches, so then you guys had Double or Nothing coming up and you came up with Stadium Stampede, which was like, we'll see your cinematic match and we will raise yeah. you. Um, I mean... What a crazy time to to find out everything that's going on, everything's shutting down, and then you guys come up with this huge match within the confines of yeah. what's going on. Well, it, it's interesting, once again, because you look back on some of the things we did during lockdown, and we had just gotten that TV deal that I spoke about, and we had a live TV show that we had to do every week, and no one knows what the is going on how long is it remember, remember do you remember the original uh, flatten the curve stay home for two weeks well that worked out real well for us didn't it i mean it was nine months and then so we were wrestling in front of nobody we went to daly's place and wrestled literally in front of nobody now that's like a stand-up comedian telling jokes to a wall how do you know if it's good i remember i worked with orange cassidy once he said did i sell that too long i was like i don't know i don't know i don't know you listen to the crowd, you know? I don't even know if I'm, oh, do people even remember who I am? Are we even over anymore? Is anything, like you just start, so anyways, a the, 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 lot of the stuff that we did, uh, a stadium send people, which I'll talk about, but you talk about, if you look at Mimosa Mayhem, for example, that match was perfect for its time. You probably couldn't do it now, but at the time, it was something cool in the middle of like, we're just trying to keep the lights on and keep people happy, you know, uh, Dinner Debonair that they showed a bit of that, which won a New York Times uh, award for most entertaining segment of the year one of the most entertaining segments of the year, and we did the Bubbly Bunch, and we just, anything we could do to keep things original, and Stadium Stampede came up, and that, that name was actually Cody's idea, we're trying to think of a name and I remember, it was simply this Tony said, we've got this giant stadium connected to Daly's Place, where we were doing the shows let's do a match in it and then somehow it's called Stadium Stampede. And I was like, okay, what are we going to do? Like, what, what is this? And I remember I had this, I used to have this wrestling uh, league when I was in high school called, called the BTWF, the Big Time Wrestling Federation. And it was me and my friend, uh, Wallace, and we would just do match after match after match, just us two, but we'd have all these characters. And we finished the, with the big show called Pummel Mania. That was our big, and we had like, they were like schizos. We were playing 10 characters each. And there was a match that I came up with called um, a segregation match. And it was, it was Sheriff Bobby Riggs, who was the, the, the racist uh, small town sheriff, versus the spirit walker, who was a, a, a First Nation native Canadian who was standing up for the rights of, of, of the Aboriginal people, and, and then Sheriff Bobby Riggs didn't like him. So the segregation match was you had to pin the guy on, on your side of the match, on your side of the ring. We put a line in the middle of the ring, and you had to pin him, on, you had to segregate, which, so anyways. So I had actually suggested this to Tony, like, it was, so is it like, do you have to pin the guy in your own end zone? And then we're like, well, that could be it. And then so, well, how the you're going to get down the end zone, you know, how you can do a false finish, run back and forth. So that's not going to work. So I said, well, let's just, let's just do a match and, and, you know, a big brawl. And I remember we all walked in there and Matt and Nick Jackson had just come back because they didn't show up for the first couple months of lockdown. And it caused a little bit of a division because they were at home losing their minds in California. Uh, and we were still working as much as we can, but there was like comments back and forth and they were commenting on the shows and everyone was kind of getting everyone's nerves. So they came back that week. So it was a little bit of kind of like, hey, hey, what's going on? How are you? you know, a little bit like, yeah. 
and then we got rid of that. And so then we all walk into this stadium, 10 of us. And it is a giant building with nothing in it. There's nothing. And I'm like, what are we going to do? <laughs> what are we going to do in this place? There's no crowd. It's even worse than Daly's Place. Daly's Place is this, and TIA is this. And so we just started thinking, well, okay, let's put a ring in the middle. All right. What do you have on the sidelines of a football game? Uh, there's like, you know, there's the fans, and there's mascots, and there's footballs, and there's yard things. Okay, well, let's walk around the stadium. Well, there's a pool up there swimming pool maybe we could do something in the swimming pool well there's a bar over here maybe we could have a bar fight and that's kind of just start thinking about it and so that's where the idea came from and we'll all start in the ring so people can't bitch and complain there's no wrestling we actually even did a tackle drop down leapfrog just so there would be that in stadium stampede <laughs> so even even people that just want to wrestle you got a tackle drop down leapfrog hip toss what more do you want and then we just broke off. I remember it was, it was me and Sammy and Matt and Nick, and let's just go figure out what we're doing in our world. And then Santana Ortiz and Kenny and um, uh, whoever else went over here, Jake and Hangman go into the bar. And then it's like, come back in three hours. What do you got? What do you got? And then we just kind of went through it. Well, f and then let's start filming it. And we started filming it Saturday night at 9 p.m. and finished at 5.30 in the morning uh, uh, so we started Friday night, 9 p.m., finished Saturday morning um, at, 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 at 5.30. So we filmed that whole thing in the course of it's 12, uh, not even 12, 10 hours, you know? Hollywood movies take months. We did it in 10 hours. Then we had, I had to sleep for four hours and get up and start editing the thing because the pay-per-view was that night. We, but that whole thing was done in the course of 24 hours. And I remember at the end of it, it was getting so tight because the sun was coming up and the fire marshal was there. And the idea was that the, the fireworks would go off when the elite wins and we had to get that shot. And I remember the fire marshal going, if you don't get this shot in the next three minutes, the whole thing shut down. I'm leaving. It's 530 in the morning. And we did it like, you know, and that, five, four, three, two, one, explosions go off. What you guys saw, if you remember the stadium stampede, that last shot was literally the fire marshal going. <laughs> Yeah, we know, we know what you We did it. And I was covered in, uh, first it was, we were sweaty. My hair was crazy. My eyes were beet red. I had the, remember Hangman took the, the sideline thing down my body, so I had a big white line. And I was wearing that football uniform. And I walked into the hotel at six in the morning, and all the flight attendants were getting ready to go to the, the airport. And I walk in, there's like, you know, five or six ladies in their uniforms. And I walk in, I got a baseball bat. I got blood all over my face. And I just went, it's been a rough night, ladies. And it turned out good. So there you go. <laughs> a round of applause for Stadium Stampede. You know, you mentioned Orange Cassidy there, and it's interesting because I feel like a lot of old school wrestling fans have such a problem with Orange Cassidy, even though sometimes it feels like he's doing things that they would like. Um, and working with him, talk about the experience or the idea of sort of picking him and going, I want to work with this guy who's maybe yeah. divisive. So I learned very early on. It actually happened to me in 2016 when I went back to WWE and like I'd be working with Seth Rollins and Seth Rollins would do three topes in a row. I was like, what the f*** is he doing? Like in my day, you do one tope and that's it. You don't do three topes in a row. And then I realized, hey, get your head out of your ass. This is the way it is now. Learn from it. Get better because of it. 
Same thing with AW when we first started. I didn't know half the roster. I literally didn't because it was mostly indie guys. I don't. I, I follow obviously online and read you know dirt sheet or whatever. But you know I didn't know who uh, Darby Allen was. You know I didn't know who Orange Cassidy is. And so Orange Cassidy comes in and I was watching him going like yeah, obviously your initial things. This sucks. It's stupid. <laughs> He's gonna stand there. He's you know his hands in his pockets and he's kicking you. I gotta sell this like, and then I'm like head out of ass the guy's over so answer me this chris talking to myself why is he over i really started watching the guy's a genius like all the stuff that he does and i asked him why where'd you come up with this he said because i was a high flyer that was not a high flyer like i'm doing indies with the bucks and you know freaking all these guys and i'm like I'm not doing anything great. I, if I don't change, I'm just another guy. So instead of trying to do all the moves, let me just do none of the moves and just be lazy. And I was like, that takes a lot of uh, commitment to get that over. And I really started appreciating the genius of Orange Cassidy. And that's when I was like, I really want to work with this guy. I think I could have some fun with him. Only problem was, it was lockdown. Flatten the curve. I wanted to work with Jungle Boy too, but I was like, he's so popular with the crowd. Let me wait till the crowds come back. <laughs> a year later, it was like, it's done, you know? So that, we did 14 weeks with Orange and, and Chris, and I loved it. The only thing I hate was the fact there was no people in the audience, but there was people watching at home. They did great ratings. It's like, we had no choice. You can't just put everything on hold. So working with him, we did a lot of great stuff. If you go back to that angle, and like I said, culminating in the Mimosa Mayhem, which you might look at it on the surface and go, that's stupid. It's actually pretty cool. I got the idea from FMW where they'd have the explosive uh, bombs outside of the ring. And the guys would be on the side of the ring like going like this. And oh, and if they fall into the explosive, it blows up, right? And you could tease that and just be like, oh. And finally the guy falls into the bomb and explodes up. That's what, That was the idea that I had with the Momosa Mayhem. We could tease going into this you know, in this, this orange juice and, and champagne, like all match. And then finally someone takes a bump in it and there's your winner. And I still think that was pretty cool, especially for the time, especially with him. He is the orange juice guy, right? I'm the bubbly guy. Get it, guys? That's what a mimosa is. Orange juice, bubbly, Jericho, orange Cassidy, right? So, um... I really, really liked work with him, and he's so good. He just had that match with Will Ospreay on the Forbidden Door pay-per-view, and it's just the guy's the guy, the guy can work. He's he's really, really good. So, my favorite thing I did with him was we uh, we did the debate, and he didn't he never talked. <laughs> and I said, wouldn't it be great if like if he just come up with some like huge speech about you know climate change, <laughs> you know, or you know, and, and, and so he wrote up this thing he put the piece of paper down on the podium and I was like some question and then I was like you know what are you going to say Orange he just goes well the Ethereum of the integral and the and the signal and he just read this whole thing and it was just like people people that were in the crowd which was 40 people went nuts for it I was like this is so good he finally talks and he says this big long you know the soliloquy about climate change but great guy great performer and he's got uh, nothing but respect for me I'll never, I'll never forget the moment where Sting did the lazy bumps back to Orange Cassidy. That was one of my favourite Sting moments. 
The MGF feud, obviously, we need to talk about it. We saw Dinner Debonair up there. There was teases throughout the Dynamite era of you and MGF and the similarities between the two of you. Um, I assume it was a concerted effort to hold off on it until it was the right time um, and then do it because it ended up being... I mean, how long did that go? You were It team? was exactly one year. Think about that. A storyline in wrestling that lasted for a year. And I really take great pride in that because I love long-term storytelling. I, that's one of the things I, I, I don't like about WWE sometimes is they, they shotgun everything. They go so fast. And it's like the, the hurt the hurt business. Hurt business? Yeah. Those guys look cool. And it's like, that's cool. And like eight weeks later, they break up. And it's like, why? You could have done a year with those guys. That's what I wanted to do with, with Max. And once again... I always kind of looked at well, who do I know, who do I want to work with? Who's available? Who's not fighting for the title? Let's figure it out. So it was Cody. Then we did the whole Mox feud. Then we did the Elite feud for Stadium. Then we did uh, we is in the royal sense me. Uh, we did the uh, Orange Cassidy. And as soon as that was done, suddenly MJF and Jericho. His story ended, and my story ended. We always knew kind of what we wanted to do, and that we'll team up first. And then you'll turn on me and see where it goes. Do we think it was going to last a year? No. But once again, I have thought this and said it for years, is that you don't try and lead the story. You let the story lead you. Where is it going? What's, what's, what's the twists and turns that are happening here? So that's what we started off. You know, Max wants a faction, wants to get in your circle. Some guys are into it. Some guys aren't. Uh, we, you know, have a match. If you can beat me, you're in the inner circle. And then he does. And like, wow, now we have two extra guys. It causes some, some problems. We go to Vegas and film. I just watched that Vegas bit. It's so funny. It holds up so well. And that was us just once again. What's in the lockdown? Let's go to Vegas. Let's have AEW send us to Vegas and just drink and party and film shit. <laughs> and that's what we did. Um... One of my favorite parts is Elvis <laughs> walking through the hallway of the hotel, which, by the way, was that, that suite. If you guys remember that we did this big Vegas inner circle in Vegas, the hotel suite where we filmed was the same hotel suite as The Hangover. They filmed the movie The Hangover. It was, it was $30,000 a night. It was, it, had a, it was amazing. But Elvis was walking through, and I said, we need some farm animals. Like, can we get some chickens? <laughs> And they're like, no, you can't get chickens. Like, what do you mean you can't get chickens? They won't allow, like, the, the Chicken Federation of America won't allow chickens live on set. I'm like, really? Chickens? Can we just CGI them? And they're like, I think we can. Let's CGI chickens. So having Elvis, when, after Elvis and I wake up in bed together because we're both super drunk, and we're walking through the hallway, and we're all f***ed up, and here comes the chickens, and I was like, who brought the farm animals, baby? <laughs> This is stuff that I get a big kick out of, so I hope you guys thought it was funny. I'm sure some people thought it was the worst thing ever, but see, I love that style of wrestling too, though. Like, I grew up in the 80s watching Vince McMahon sing Stand Back at the Slammies. I mean, that's wrestling to me too. It's that side of it. It's fun, right? So when we do, you know, Dinner Debonair, we go to Vegas, or we did the Bubbly Bunch and all the stuff that we did, that's, that's wrestling to me as well. It's entertainment, it's character building, it's fun. And that's the, that's the, the crux of what, what, the, what the business is. It's fun, it's supposed to be fun. If you want high art, go watch the chess tournament. Trust me, nobody wants to watch the chess tournament. You want some fun and see some great moves and see some ridiculous characters and CGI chickens with Elvis walking through a hotel room? That's wrestling. 
<laughs> so, um, but with the with the MGF stuff, I mean, one of the fun parts was you did the Labors of Jericho. And yeah. if someone had said to me pre, I mean, if someone had said to me pre-COVID there would be a COVID, I would have said you were crazy. But that Chris Jericho would wrestle Nick Gage on TNT. Yeah. I mean, thoughts on I mean putting that together. Nobody expected to see that. Well, here's what I love with working with Max, and it was like it was when when, we, when our feud finally ended, it almost felt like you know broke up with my girlfriend or something. It was kind of sad because we we worked in tandem for the whole thing. You know, obviously Tony's involved too, but just coming up with ideas from week to week and kind of having these overall arching plans. And we had the idea that I have to go through the guys to get to Max. The Mox program, he had to go through the inner circle to get to me. So it's like it's kind of like. I don't want to do the exact same thing and go through the pinnacle, but I do want to have a match with Spears. I do want to have a match with Wardlow. You know, I want to have a match with everybody, but... And then Max said, well, what if we get, like, some, like, guests type of a thing? And he was really stuck on this Nick Gage guy. Now, once again, I don't know who the f*** Nick Gage is. The only thing I vaguely remember about Nick Gage is he's the guy... Isn't he the guy that, like, tried to kill David Arquette or something like that? So I watched this Nick Gage, and I'm like, okay, I understand. So this is kind of cool. Like, you know, you bring your chair guy spears i beat him then you bring in like the deathmatch guy who's gonna tear your you know tear your throat out okay that's kind of cool then you bring in one of your oldest rivals hooventude great and then everyone's like it's got to be a lance storm the fourth and this guy is no it's wardlow that's the guy it's just, you know that's 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 where the powerbomb symphony started my idea by the way thank you um but nick gage it was once again like i don't know who this guy is but he's f insane you know, and then I asked Mox about him. He's like, oh, he's, he's, he's I think, what do you use? He's, he's a teddy bear or something. He's just, whatever he said. <laughs> and I spoke to him a couple times, and he was super, super respectful. And that goes a long way with me. Like, I meet a lot of guys in the business. As long as you have respect for the business, I'm cool with you. I don't care what you do. And when I met him, he was so, so respectful. And really was happy to be there and was kind of like hey man you know i just want to tell you like you know i'm a real big fan of yours and like it's really cool for me to be here and i was like he, he's, he loves wrestling he, this is the path that his wrestling took doesn't mean he's any less of a wrestler i really started learning the psychology of deathmatch wrestling what possesses these guys to do this i'm not one of those guys, oh, that's bullshit that's bullshit stupid dude, dude, my show wrestling i don't i don't look at it that way i look at it okay there's a market for this and, th and these guys are really good at what they're doing. How are they doing it? So I really watched what he was doing. And I thought, like, man, I'll do it. I'll do it. I was, there was a time, there was a Chris Jericho time period where I would have went, I would never get hit with a light tube. That's stupid. That's not wrestling. That's bullshit. And then, you know, once again, take head out of ass, Jericho. And does it fit the story? Yes. Does it fit the story of the match? Yes. Let's do it. And that's, and that's how that match happened. And I love that match. It's one of my favorite matches that I've had. I'll never take another light tube over the head. You know? There's no reason for me to. Then again, I said I'd never take another thumbtack tack bump. And I took one the other day and blood and guts. So who knows? But it fit. And it was really cool. And he, he did a great job. And he was, he's very popular. He really is very popular. And the only bad thing is, like, sometimes we don't choose where the matches are. Had that match been like in New York or Philadelphia or somewhere on the East Coast, it would have been even more of a reaction. We did it like, I think, Charlotte, North Carolina. I don't know how big Nick Gage is in Charlotte, but people still loved it. And it was just really cool. And, and, and I always had it in mind, like, 
maybe there'll be a place where we can do something together again. Like I would, I would do something with him at any point in time, bring him in for something special if I needed him for a story. Once again, nothing but respect for the guy, and I had never even uh, heard of him prior to Max talking about him and, and suggesting. That was Max's idea, and uh, I think it turned out great. If you watch, too, thank you. We came up with the idea, oh, I would do the Frankensteiner from the top, and he would, he would take the bump through the plate of glass that we had set up on, on two chairs. If you watch that back and slow it down, when he takes the... When I do the Frankensteiner, my feet hit the glass, and it pops up just a bit, and he comes down on it. Had, had it gone the other way, it might have just fucking collapsed into the ground, and that wouldn't have happened. But it's amazing the stuff that could almost happen. But yeah, I was like... That my feet hit that glass and it was like, oh, please don't fall out. Oh, thank you. And then Domino's got in touch briefly after that match. That was hilarious. <laughs> so Nick wanted to do uh, a pizza cutter. That's one of his gimmicks. So he, right out of the gate, I said, well, sli he slices my arm with a pizza cutter. I still have a scar there. And that gets people like, holy shit, this is, this is real. And then during the commercial break, he starts slicing my forehead with the pizza cutter in picture in picture. Now, picture in picture is like they, 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 they take the screen down so you can still watch the action, but there's a commercial. People yell at us at Blood and Guts like, oh, I get all these commercials during the match. It kills the floor of the match. You do understand it's free, <laughs> and we have to pay the bills, so watch the commercials and shut your mouth, right? <laughs> Quit complaining. I really wish they didn't have commercials on a free TV show for an hour-long match. Matches are too long. Matches are too short. Not enough action. Too much action. Shut up. So right when Nick is carving my forehead with the pizza cutter, there is a Domino's pizza commercial where the guy is cutting the pizza with what? A pizza cutter. Cutting, cutting. And apparently Domino's was furious. And this was like, AEW's going to lose all their sponsors, and then this is it. This is the end of the line. Nothing ever happened. I was like, if I was the Domino's guy, I would have I filmed a Chris Jericho, Nick Gage commercial the next day. <laughs> I mean, it's right there. Pizza cutters, Domino's, it, they go hand in hand. Well, you go from pizza cutters, and one of the big moments in your uh, rivalry with MJF was the original Blood and Guts, where you take the bump off the, the yes. cell. Um, was that your idea? Did you need to be talked into that? Were you up for doing it? Talk us through your thought process of doing that spot. Well, once again, I mean, terrifying, by the way. One of the, one of the most terrifying things I had to do just all day thinking about it. And um, I knew that it was it's the finish that had to be done. You know, it's surrender or submit. We're on top of the cage. Max is threatening to throw me off. Sammy surrenders. We, they win the match, and then he throws me off anyways. That's a heel. That's, that's what he should do. So I would have loved to not have taken that bump, but it, it was the only way to end that match. So it's part of my job. Like we mentioned with the light tube or you know, talking about the, the spin on top of the cage, all that stuff. I would rather not do those things, but it, it fits the story. And that's the most important thing to me. So, yeah, I was scared. I really was scared. And if you watch that, I dislocated my elbow on one side. But if you, if you really watch, there was like a bunch of lights that when I fell off, I went so far back that the back of my head missed a rack of lights by this much. If I would have whacked my head on the back of like these metal spotlights, I could have died, right? But 
you don't think about that when you're doing it. Just pray for the best. So um, Sammy's fall the other day at Blonde Guts was way crazier because it was higher. My fall went to the stage, which wasn't as high, but I'm not Sammy Guevara. I'm not, I'm not that talented uh, as far as being an athlete. And I have a thing called fear that goes <laughs> into my head that he did not. But I remember all day long just thinking about it, praying, like, please, you know, we, we, we just, every precaution you can take, we took. But still, you're literally falling, you know, 12 feet on your back. Can't see anything. It's just like, here we go. And they said, step off the back. So you're standing, and they, and they said, step off. So the guy just goes, you just step off, and then you, you just fall. And I'm like, well, it's easy for you to say, Mr. Stuntman. So I'm on the thing, and it's like, step back, but what if I don't go? And I push myself off, which is why I almost hit my head on the back. I don't know. But, you know, we're not trained stuntmen, but it's part of what we do. So um, I thought it was a great finish. Uh, and I think, it, like I said, the reason why we did it is because it just fit the story and just kind of really intensified the... Uh, the rivalry and and the stakes between Max and Chris because at that point we'd been going for I think eight months but there was still more to the story and that's why we ended up going a whole year because that story played itself out in a year it couldn't have gone shorter some people say it was too long I don't think so I think every week and every piece fit the puzzle of that overall tale that we were telling we talked about the original Stadium Stampede earlier, but then a year later you guys do the, the, the sequel, and this time you get to end it with a crowd. And, yeah. I mean, that must have been a cool moment for you for all the reasons you mentioned earlier about, you know, not being in front of a crowd and reading people to being able to do a Stadium Stampede with a crowd. Well, I think that was Sammy's idea, and Tony loved it, and I didn't even think of it. It's like, what a great idea. Let's do Stadium Stampede, but let's move it into the arena. where that was. I think that was the first... The first show, we had a full house again, like full capacity was back, and it was just amazing. The crowd was just so hot because everyone was excited just to be back out doing something. So we did the stadium stampede, like you said. And if you look, the, the, another reason why I started the MJF thing is I had two things that I wanted to do. I wanted to get Max over as a bigger star, which definitely worked. I wanted to get Sammy over as a bigger star, which definitely worked. And then there's a little bit of a, a backtrack, but now he's back where he needs to be again. These guys need this storytelling. If you remember Stadium Stampede, Sammy won the same. He's the one who came back in with Spears. Could have easily just said, I'm going to do it. No, Sammy's the one who sprayed the bubbly on the guys. I could have, no, you try and put everyone in a spot where they get a little bit of a, of a, of a spotlight on them. And um, I, I think that, that that's why it worked so well in that live setting. And it was the perfect way to kind of bridge stadium stampede with anarchy in the arena we i don't want to do a cinematic match nobody does uh we wanted to take the stadium stampede concept and bring it to the live post-pandemic stage and that's where anarchy in the arena came from it's kind of a similar idea but now we're doing it in everybody's face live in the crowd live in the arena and i think that match worked out it was so good but we, once again we didn't know what to, what's the anarchy in the arena match i don't know we show up at the t-mobile center in vegas and we're looking around this big, giant, empty arena that didn't even have a ring in it, and we're just like, well, now what are we going to do? But that's, I mean, it's something that Vince used to say. I just book the shit, you make it work. And that's what we did. We made it work. So if, if, once, I'm really proud of the uh, levels that we've continued to grow to with the chains that we had on us, A, being a brand new company, B, being in a lockdown and see, trying to keep things entertaining. And I think we've done that and continue to raise the bar each 
pay-per-view, each match, each year. Uh, and that's why we do it. Like, like you know, it, it's one of those things where I think they're hot shotting. I don't think so because we we need to do everything we can to get as many people talking about us. And there's no such thing as hot shotting. You just change the guys around, and you know, you're going to do Ironic in the Ring next year. Change the competitors, and it's a whole new match. That's what we need to continue to do. That's what we've done, I think, very well so far. And you know, with MJF, the last name is obviously he's very much in the news right now with everything that's going on. What did you like learn about working with him? Like in terms of what he was like as a you know somebody to work with, and you know what do you see in his future? He's really smart. He's really smart. And even though he's only been in the business five six years, he, he really does have an air to him that he's been around like you know twenty years. Like that's like that's why I really enjoyed working with him because. He's really smart. He's still not as good as he's going to be. Um, and that just comes with more time and more experience. So I used to say to him sometimes, you're not as good as you think you are yet. You're getting there, but you're still not as good as you think you are. And, you know, once again, I, I also have a, a motto, like if it doesn't have anything to do with me, I don't pay attention to it or worry about it. So the whole thing with Max right now, if he was in a story with me, I might know a bit more about it, but he's not. It doesn't affect me either way, really. So I just kind of stay out of it. So... I'm sure he'll be back, or maybe he won't be, but either way, he's going to be a, a huge star, even bigger than he already is for a long time, because I think he just maybe turned 26 years old recently. So, I mean, that is a great, great... All he needs is a little bit more experience, which he'll get. Uh, but from a, a thinking standpoint, he's very smart, and he's also deceptively athletic. Most guys in AEW are deceptively athletic. I still, like, look at me, I did a second row... Lion salt, <laughs> and these guys are doing running, shooting star presses just like for the hell of it. Like literally, I'm like F you. <laughs> like, you know, back in the day, a shooting star press was a move that no one could. Now you guys are just doing them like standing, standing <laughs> shooting star presses. Yeah, once again, all you guys, F your ass. <laughs> it, it seemed in the kind of you know the the last parts of the inner circle into the beginning of the Jericho Appreciation Society. That like the inner circle on TV, it was odd that sometimes you guys were together, sometimes you weren't, sometimes there was some of you, sometimes there was all of you. What was the kind of transition between deciding, right, we're going to end the inner circle completely and we're going to do the Jericho Appreciation Society? Well, from like a romantic standpoint, I thought it would be really cool if the inner circle never broke up or never, uh, never feuded with each other. You know, my idea was after the pay-per-view I had in Chicago with Max where if I lost, I had to retire, with the next night we would come out and we would go our separate ways as the inner circle. The only faction in wrestling history to never turn on each other. We just go our separate ways. Uh, Tony didn't want to do that, so we continued going. We did the thing with Dan Lambert and got through that and did the best we could, which was still fun. And then it was like, well, what do we do now? Like, we can't just keep, you know, you can't just keep going out every time with five guys and you got to worry about, you know, what's going to finish the match you're going to be, make sure everyone's... Like, it's hard. Like, and everybody lo looks at me to, to kind of orchestrate it. So I'm spinning, like... You know, five plates at a time, it's hard to do. So then I, I start a faction that has seven people now, so now i got seven <laughs> plates to spin. But So anyways, that kind of was the idea. And then, once again, let the story lead you. So I thought, well, I'd like to, same thing as I had with Cody and with Mox and with Orange and with Max. I want to work with Eddie Kingston. This guy is great. I'd never heard of him. It's a well-told story when Cody first brought him in. I thought it was Eddie Edwards. That he was bringing in. I didn't know who Eddie Kingston was. Like, do they, Eddie Kingston, is that Eddie Edwards? It's like, no, it's Eddie Kingston. Which guy is that? Who is this? And so he walked in there and I was just looking at him. I was like, God, this guy looks like a jobber. Like, this, who is this guy? You know? And then I watched his match and it was good, but then he did a promo and I was like, holy shit, this guy's 
great. Where's this guy been for 25 years of my wrestling career? Why do I not know this guy? So I kind of watched his stuff, and I, was, I, said, oh, man, this, I told him, from the, I said, you are going to be a huge babyface in this company. No, I'm not. A, I said, you're a babyface. Just trust me. So that's when I decided I wanted to work with him. We had a couple ideas. I got hurt. Then he got hurt. Uh, then we're just trying to, like, what do we do with the story now? Then he did this promo where he said the reason why San Antonio Ortiz won the titles is because of Jericho. So, oh, that's interesting. Let's have a little bit of animosity there. And then uh, we had started this thing with 2.0 and Daniel Garcia where they beat me up. Then they beat Eddie Kingston up in a separate occasion. And then I go to the ring to get my revenge on those three guys as they happen to be in the ring beating up Eddie Kingston. I'm not down there to, to save Eddie. I'm down there to beat up the three guys that beat me up. Eddie takes umbrage to that. Umbrage, great word. And then we start a little bit of a feud. You can't win the big one, Eddie Kingston. And then finally, he does win the big one against me. And then we become partners. That was the original, like I said, genius idea that I came up with. And a funny thing happened on the way to the races. Like I said, he got hurt, I got hurt. Then suddenly there's a Santana Ortiz thing where there's some dissension there. And those three guys started their careers together. And then Daniel Bryan starts talking about putting together his own faction. And he mentions Daniel Garcia. And I was like, well, that's a shame if he takes Danny with him and leaves 2.0 high and dry. Those three guys have been doing good. Like, they should be together. Maybe they should be together with me. Ooh, that's interesting. Santana Ortiz and Eddie Kingston, me, Matt, Jeff, and, and Danny. And I'll keep Jake because he's my heater. He's the original Inner Circle member. Sammy split because he was the champion. We said, he said, I'm going to do my own thing. So he's out. We've got a whole new thing here. This is great. And that's kind of how that all started. So I thought, well, I need, and I came up with this whole idea. And I remember the name of the faction originally was going to be the Citadel. The Citadel. I like that name. Citadel. Wow. So I told Tony the whole thing and he really liked it. And then when I said Citadel, he totally no sold it. Didn't say a word. And as soon as he didn't say a word, I'm like, oh, the Citadel sucks. I hate it. <laughs> I was like, nah, that's not good. And then I was looking at something about an art uh, appreciation society. I got some email about, like, you know, here's the Art Appreciation Society of Tampa, which is where I live. And I was like, the Appreciation Society. That's, that's pretty fucking pompous. Like, the art? Who's, who's going into the Art Appreciation Society? Who's attending these meetings? I'm thinking of a bunch of, like, snotty guys with ascots and cigarette holders eating cheese. And I'm like, that's got a lot of pompousness to it. Jericho appreciates society. It's perfect. It's perfect. And I told Tony that, and he bit on that so hard. He loved it. He kept talking about the JS, the Jazz, the JS, Jericho appreciates society. So the last part of the story is we go to Bridgeport, Connecticut, and it's a face-to-face -face promo with Jericho and Eddie Kingston. And Eddie, he's unorthodox. He does, he, I would never do a promo the way Eddie Kingston does. I would say that's just not the way to do it. For him, it works perfectly. And he comes down to the ring. He's like, I don't want to be here. This is pro wrestling. You want sports entertainment? Go down the street. Because Bridgeport, Connecticut is right down the street from Stanford, where WWE headquarters is. You want sports entertainment? Go down the street. And people start booing. They are booing. They do not like sports entertainment in AEW. Just the word, just the thought of sports entertainers causes them to boo. And I'm like, I go backstage, I grab my phone, I text my copyright lawyer. Now, Gene Simmons told me face-to-face, -face, always copyright everything. Any name you have, copyright it, always. <laughs> hey, Mike, 
is there a copyright on sports entertainers? He goes, I'll check. 20 minutes later, no. And I was like, you have got to be fucking kidding me. 30 years, they've never copyrighted it. Ever. Later that day, the new holder of the copyright for sports entertainers, right here. <laughs> and one last thing about that, when we started the sports entertainer thing, people were like, okay, now you got to do like vignettes and have a commentator and do, uh, that just uses sports entertainment turns and, and f film your matches the way that WWE does with quick camera cuts and then come down with, with stupid 80s gimmicks. I'm like, stop, 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 stop. The reason why it works is my motto, and you could ask any of the guys from Inner Circle or, or Jericho Appreciation Society, what's my motto? Play it straight. Always play it straight. You don't become a sports entertainer. That's not what we're doing. We're not coming down there to be like, suddenly Chris is like, you know, Chris the dumpster Jericho, and I come down as a garbage man. <laughs> it's sports entertainer in theory and word and attitude, but not in, in, in literal form. So... That's why it works. If we came down there, you know, you know, like I said, with these stupid gimmicks and we're trying to be something parodying, parodying that, it wouldn't work. It's a comedy. It's a joke. And there's a saying in wrestling, funny don't make money. And it's true. There's a place for comedy in wrestling, but no main event world champion is a comedy guy. You've got to play it straight. And that's what we've done with the Jericho Appreciation Society. And I look at the stuff we've done in the last four months from Blood and Guts to uh, the, the big angle returning to Kingston and then it had all the twists and turns in that, anarchy in the arena. Like, there's been a lot of classic moments already with guys that two months or two weeks prior were basically just jobbers. You know, I told Matt Parker and Jeff, uh, Matt Lee and Jeff Parker, I had a, a conference call with them. I said, number one, you've got to change your names. Those are jobber names if I've ever heard them. Matt Lee. Jeff Parker. Sounds like guys you see in 80s WWE that would have an Adidas sweat jacket and they say, and then the ring, Matt Lee. And he goes like this and unzips his jacket and then loses <laughs> to Jake Roberts in 30 seconds. So that's when they gave me a list of names that they wanted to be. And Jeff Parker's big one was he goes, I want to be called Slick. <laughs> I said, I think that one's taken. <laughs> There's a big, tall, black dude called Slick. They probably have that copyright. I said, look, come up with something else. And he said he wanted to be like Cool Hand Luke, which is a Paul Newman movie. And I said, what's your real name? He gave me his real name, and Angelo literally is one of his real names. He's got, and I was like, well, dude, the Cool Hand Luke, Cool Hand Angelo. It doesn't fit. Cool Hand Luke, Cool Hand Ange. How about your Cool Hand Ange, Angelo Parker? Done. Matt Lee sends me these summertime <laughs> prime rib, Matt, whatever. And I said, what's your, what's your real name? Once again, his real name is Matt Menard. Menard, that's a cool name. I've never heard Menard in wrestling. And then he said, I want to be mag the magic daddy. And I was like, <laughs> let's flip-flop. What about daddy magic? That sounds pretty obnoxious. And he's like, it's a, and daddy magic has now become a thing. People love that guy. Sports entertainers. Talks like this. Hey, how you doing? So um, now we've, those guys have reinvigorated their careers. Danny's the new Sammy, even though Sammy's with me again now. But, but you know, you, we're constantly building. That's why the, these guys are with me. It's not me bearing anybody. I'm using the star power and the experience that I have to build as many stars as we can. And Matt and Jeff are perfect examples of that. Angelo and Daddy Magic. Like, nobody cared. And now they're part of this... Uh, faction and they're killing it they did a great job in blood and guts they do a great job with everything they get and that's part of it give everybody a spotlight give everybody their moments even if it's just a little one 
but give them something that people will go, oh, there he is. He's on the show. And that's the repetition is what creates stars. Um, and I want to ask you about, um, this is a cheap plug. I interviewed William Regal for Inside the Ropes magazine, which you can get at insidetheropesmagazine.com. And then I asked him about you and working with you. And he said something interesting. And he said, Darren and Chris are friends. But when we go out as William and Chris, we hate each other. Yeah. Why do you think that is? Well, those are the roles that we're playing. You know, and, and having Regal once to see what what I like about AEW is we bring guys, people. Oh, there's just a lot of ex WWE guys, but no, that's not the case. This is not like Impact bringing in Hulk Hogan and Eric Bischoff to do the same thing they did ten years ago. This is bringing in guys like Claudio and Moxley and FTR and you know Daddy Magic and Cool and Ange and William Regal and giving them whole new leases on wrestling. Regal is, is Regal. He can do whatever he wants, and he's not being restricted. We want him to be William Regal, the guy with 35 years' experience, the great commentator, you know, all that stuff. So that's the role that we play. I've known Darren for 30, no, not 30, 26 years, something like that. And essentially, he's kind of the last guy besides Chavo uh, Guerrero, who's still with us from our group, our, our gang of guys, you know, Chris and Eddie and, and, and all those guys. Well, Dean's, Dean's still with us too, but so we have a lot of history behind us and we love playing off each other. I mean, we had a great feud in WWE um, and that's why when, when, the, when the Blackpool Combat Club started, which is another thing I laugh about, is that we had the Jericho Appreciation Society, Santana Ortiz and Kingston, numbers game, numbers game, numbers game. This is boring. Too much five on three. Why wouldn't Eddie Kingston and Santa Ortiz get some backup? Here comes the Blackpool Combat Club. Who's in the Blackpool Combat Club? Moxley. Who's Moxley's former tag team partner? Kingston. Nobody saw it coming. It was so obvious. And that's when they finally appeared and joined Eddie's guys. Now it's like, oh, this is cool. Now we have something extra onto this. And Regal was a big part of that. He came in at the right time. Obviously, he's the catalyst for the Blackpool Combat Club. And he's a great baby face. Uh, and we have, you know, great verbal jousting when we're doing commentary. And, you know, the very first night, uh, he came down to the ring and I just said, punch me. And he punched me and people went nuts. And they started chanting Regal. They wanted Regal to have a match. He can't from physical reasons. But, like, I just said, punch me. I knew it. And he punched me hard. And it was a good one. It was hurt. <laughs> but people love it because they love him. And now we can utilize that on our show to make him one of our characters that's reinvigorated in a way he never would have had if he stayed in WWE. Um, Blood and Guts 2, you took the swing from Claudio on top of the, the cage. I mean, that was hard to watch. Yeah. Never mind. I mean, <laughs> talk, talk us through the, who came up with the idea and how it felt in the moment compared to what you thought it might before. Well, it sounds like a broken record, but that was my idea. And the reason, there you go. <laughs> the reason for it is okay, Claudio came in and I actually went and stood in the arena at Forbidden Door just to hear the reaction because I knew people would go nuts for him but they went nuts for him uh, and I was like they really really like this guy and once again we have a chance to build another main event star very quickly what's the best way to do that focus on his strengths and one of his strengths is his strength he is so strong it's unbelievable how strong he is and um I said, well, I'll have him start. Have him start with Sammy because Sammy's very dynamic. He can make him look good. And then let's continue through. And I had the idea 
of going on top of the cage. Now, I wouldn't have thought of that again, except for last year's Blood and Guts, we still only had a 1,000 people in the crowd. And if you remember, because of the way we shot at Daly's Place, what you saw was the cage and then basically just the wall behind it, the big Tron, the stage. You couldn't really get a sense of the massiveness of this cage. And it just didn't, it looked cool, but it was almost like, to me, it was like, oh, good job, guys. Oh, good job. Is that your hell in the cell? Oh, good job. Good job. <laughs> so when I got there, I said, dude, we need to do something on top of the cage because I'm just envisioning this shot from the hard camera of the cage with 6,000 people. There's 12 there, but 6,000 people on this side with Eddie Kingston standing on top of the cage, just standing there. People just, ah. And that was my vision. And people were like, well, we shouldn't go on top again. I said, well, next year, no. This year, we have to because it's essentially the debut of Blood and Guts. It's the first time people have seen how big this is with this giant crowd in Detroit, one of our biggest that we've had. We need to really... This puts us on a different level. This makes AEW look every bit as big as any other wrestling company in the world today. Let's go on to the top. Sammy <laughs> texts me a couple days. Hey, I want to take a bump off the top. I'm like, of course you do. He wanted to take a bump off the top last year. And I was like, well, I'm already taking it. So you... So, <laughs> What can we do? How can we do? Oh, maybe Eddie throws him off. Great. And then maybe I put Eddie into the walls, and then maybe Claudio comes up and saves the day. And then Tony had the idea of two submissions, and Claudio gets the tap out first, which robs Eddie Kingston of his submission, which causes a little bit of animosity between those two. Story, story, story. So I just said, F it, man. When he comes up there, you got to give me the swing. Because people love the day. He gave, he gave uh, Cool Hand Ange 20 spins. Door and people were going bananas for it. So I was like, dude, you got to give me the, the spin on top of the cage. And, he, and he, when I got there, he said, I can't do it. I said, why? He said, because everywhere that I spin, the chain the, that lifts the cage is in the way. And I was like, well, we could do it on the edge. He goes, you can't do it on the edge. It's insane. I said, why? I said, you're, you're the strongest guy. Like, I would not have done that with anybody else, anybody else on the planet. But with him, I took that spin many, many times. And I was like, dude, you're in total control. We can do it. We're not that close to the edge. <laughs> so um, we talk about the area we're going to do it and then here it comes and dude I'll tell you what I was scared about falling off the cage when I got into the position for this spot I was like oh my gosh <laughs> and then he starts spinning now the first there was seven rotations which seemed like a thousand hours to do those seven. It was ten. It was ten seconds. The first three, I was cool. Then I started to lose my mind because all I could see was this little people sitting in the crowd like this. Little people, little people, little people. and then this. I'm like, oh my gosh, how high up are we? This is terrible. And I, I was remember looking at him in the eyes because that's the secret is you got to look him in the eyes. And I was like, stop, stop, stop. And he put me down. Here's the thing. Watching it back on TV, he was so in control, and he didn't move out of this one little semicircle. And we were probably, I say, this far from the edge. So there's really no way I can fall unless he loses his balance. And whoa, he wouldn't lose his balance. Watching it back, I could have taken it 15 times because I was, I was completely safe. Doing it, I was losing my mind. Like, oh, my God, I'm going to fall off the edge. 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 But, you know, and it's, it's so funny because I knew that people would respond to that spot. 
I didn't realize just how insane it was until I watched it back. And people were telling me how insane they thought it was. And I was like, you know what? That is pretty crazy. Because all anybody's thinking is one false step and you're done. The other thing about it too was there was all the thumbtacks. And so I took a picture and posted it on Instagram. The bottom of my boot was completely covered with thumbtack. Okay. Earlier in the day, we're walking on top. You're going through stuff. You're climbing the outside to get to the top of the cage. Now add, I don't know, 100 thumbtacks on your boots. It's like skating on ice. It's like walking on ice. Steel on steel with no traction. As soon as I went out and put my foot on the rung to start climbing, I was like, there's no traction on this thing. I get to the top. I'm with Eddie fighting. And I, literally, the, the swing was completely traction. I'm walking like near the edge and I'm like sliding. There's no track. And I'm trying to like do this on, on the grate of the cage to get the tacks off. They're not coming off. And I was just remember going like, that's why there was a big fight scene at Eddie and I did it on our knees. Cause I was like, you know, you do the thing where you're like, you know, fight forever and you're, oh, oh. And the reason for that was, I said, I can't stand up. There's too many, I got too many tacks on my feet. I'm slipping, like, I'm slipping around all over this. I'm like, I'm fucking walking on ice. So that's what we're talking about, you know, 20 feet above you guys <laughs> as we're fighting each other. I'm telling them, I got tacks on my boots. I'm going to fall. But I think it, it, it worked out really, really well. And I think we really put blood and guts on the map and took it to the next level to where it's as impressive as anything you'll see in pro wrestling uh, at any point in time. Um, I'm just gonna ask Are you guys enjoying this? It's a lot of information. We appreciate it, though. You guys all right in the back? How about in front? Back. Front. Back. Everybody. You pass. The last AEW thing I wanted to ask you was, you said before, you know, in WWE, you had a lot of freedom, a lot of creative freedom to kind of do things, whatever, but I'm... From when you talk, it seems like in AEW, you've got a lot of it to, you know, kind of maybe think about who you're feuding with or in your programs. Is that one of the things that's kept you so excited and interested in AEW that you've been able to be so involved? Absolutely. Um, and once again, like, I, I don't think I'd be wrestling um, full time if there was no AEW because WWE, I, like I told you earlier, I was just kind of over it. I probably would, I would have stayed in New Japan, but then the lockdown came. I wasn't going to go sit in a hotel room for 14 days to have a match in front of nobody. So who knows what might have happened if there was no AEW. Doesn't matter what might have happened. What did happen is AEW was, was created. It was a success. And I became just so falling back in love with wrestling again, but also too, with great power comes great responsibility. Is that the Spider-Man line? So there was, a, I had a lot to do um, because we don't have writers and that is not a gimmick. That's not a writer. We don't have writers. Tony books the show for everybody except for the ones that give ideas. So from day one, I write three months, four months of programs out. And like I said earlier, let the story lead me if somebody gets injured or whatever happens or this let's go over here for a while but i ha i'm creating and writing and so every couple months i get tony on the phone and we go over my you know 8 to 10 to 12 weeks of what i have and there's there's a sign a signposts that connect the dots okay we know we have this we know we have this and we know we have this we got 3 weeks to fill in here 3 weeks to fill in here that'll come but here's what we're going to get to 
So that makes it great because the one thing in WWE was a lot of times you'd be like, draw me a picture. What would you like a picture of, Vince? A cow. Okay. Uh, make it a horse. Uh, okay. Uh, make it a dragon. Oh, okay. Like with Tony, it's like we need a dragon. We, it might be a green dragon. It might be a red dragon. It might be a fire dragon. But at least we know where we're going with it. So I loved working with Vince. And I did work with Vince. But it's writers. And every Monday the, or Sunday, the writer would call you and say, here's what, you, here's what you're doing this week. And that to me is just like, I don't, I don't like that, man. I don't want to be told what I'm doing because I know now that I can write storyline better than anybody because I know wrestling 32 years in the business I know what to do I know people's characters and what what you guys like to see or what you don't like to see so it makes it so much more alive to write these stories and like once again I don't take a lot of uh you know stock into it but the people are always like it's too long it's too short it's too fat it's too skinny it's too white it's too black it's too whatever you know like the eddie kingston thing and i it's like well eddie should have got the pin it was the it was the blow off of the jericho feud at blood and guts how do you know it's the blow off the jericho feud well how can you beat blood and guts how can you i know how and you'll find out about over the next few weeks so there's always a place to go with it and there's always the culmination of a story and leading into the next one. I've got a lot of ideas. Unfortunately, some of them are marred by guys getting injured. That's part of the business, too. You just, you just go with the flow. You can't help it that guys get injured. It sucks. It sucks. We couldn't help it when you'd show up for TV and, ah, uh, he's not here. He's got COVID. Really? Of all the weeks to have COVID, this is the week? We were, I was testing every week in fear of, like, please don't be positive. Not this week. Please, like... Please, blood and guts. Imagine if someone tested positive, you know? So anyways, you just have to go with it. But you always know that it's going to be good if you rely on your storytelling instincts. And that's what I say to every fan, everybody that watches the show. When I watch a movie, I watch from beginning to end. And then I make my opinion. I watch Titanic, and it starts here, and it ends here, and it's long. But when it's done, it's like, that was a really good story. That was worth every minute. So if you ever don't like something that I'm doing... If it's in the middle of it, just shut up and watch. There's a beginning, there's a middle, there's an end. Don't ask what the end is before it happens because I'm not going to tell you, but don't get mad at me if you go, that sucks. It's not over yet, you idiot. Just watch the show. Shut up.